0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Mike Masick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle.
0: Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us, fighting and taking on all the plates and pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Putin lies do their lies and make and fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and. Uh, we have talked plenty over the past few years or so uh, about some, well, I would say, really, really questionable policymaking decisions uh, by the EU, mainly, uh, directed at the internet. Uh, many of these seem to be the EU wanting to, in some ways, get back at the big American internet companies. Uh, but really only seem to have the end result of locking those big American internet companies into their somewhat dominant positions. Uh, most concerning of all about the impact of all of these different regulatory approaches, to me at least, has been their impact on free speech. There was the GDPR, which certainly does have some good aspects in terms of trying to put some greater control and transparency over user data, but which has created all sorts of free speech questions and problems uh, with a codified right to be forgotten. Uh, Then there's the EU Copyright Directive, uh, which is still being negotiated and debated, and that will create, among other things, uh, almost certainly uh, a system that, while it claims not to, uh, will, in effect, demand mandatory filters that will almost certainly block protected speech as well. Uh, But the impact of both of those may actually be nothing compared to the next great EU regulatory innovation, uh, known as the EU Terrorist Content Regulation. Uh, once again here, the idea behind it seems fairly straightforward. Uh, EU regulators are annoyed or worried uh, that some terrorist groups have used the Internet to spread their message and want rules to uh, effectively outlaw that. But at least to me, the rules are pretty crazy, uh, requiring companies to take down content within an hour or face huge penalties, while also figuring out how to block the same content from ever reappearing. Uh, And this new rule will apply even to companies that have no real presence in the EU, but will require them to magically have a representative uh, in the EU to handle these kinds of requests. Uh, It goes beyond that as well in many different ways. But it's a very concerning development to me. And so we've brought back uh, two of our favorite experts (laughs) on ways in which regulators are uh, destroying free speech on the Internet. Uh, And they are Daphne Keller uh, from Stanford's uh, Center for Internet and Society and Emma Lonzo from the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, Welcome back, both of you. It's
2: great to be back.
0: Um, yeah, I, I wish that we weren't always talking about um, regulations that were destroying the internet, but, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm glad to, to have you guys on. Uh, so let's start with what exactly is in the terrorist content regulation. And I, I know it's been worked on and there are changes being made and, and differences along the ways. But can we get just sort of a basic overview of what it, it includes?
2: Emma, you want to take that one? Oh, sure. Um, So there are a couple of key ways that the terrorist content regulation is looking to limit the spread of what they call terrorist content online. Um, The definition of terrorist content is really quite broad. It includes things like incitement to terrorist activities, but also kind of a much broader category of glorification of terrorist activity, as well as um, information that kind of might aid in the commission of a terrorist attack. Think bomb making materials or, um, you know, instructions on how to drive a truck into a crowd of people or other, you know, actual kind of terrorist events that, that Europe has been grappling with. Um, And this definition comes from a regulation or a directive that the um, EU passed back in 2017 that has at this point only been implemented into law in about half of the member states of the EU, which means that it's a relatively novel definition that goes a lot farther than a lot of definitions around terrorist content um, in previously written out in law. And it also means that we're not exactly sure what the full kind of scope and impact and interpretation by courts of, you know, what is the speech covered here will actually be. So you take this very broad definition of terrorist content um, and then empower so-called competent authorities in the member states to do a couple of different things. The first, which you already uh, referenced, Mike, is this new kind of legal order That a competent authority, which could be a law enforcement agency, maybe an administrative body or a court, but possibly just the police force, um, to be able to send an order directly to a content host um, saying this material is we have decided unilaterally terrorist content and it has to be removed within one hour. Um, There are provisions put into the law about potentially getting more information if you're the content host about, like, what's the nature of this content? What are the justifications? But the emphasis is on respond to this order from the police within one hour. Um, There's also the provision for what are called referrals. Um, So again, from a competent authority, potentially law enforcement, uh, where instead of a sort of quasi-court order in which no court has been involved, you get just a sort of a notification from law enforcement that they've found material on your platform that law enforcement thinks violates the content host's terms of service. Um, Perhaps they also think it violates the law. uh, But in any case, the the standard that's being called on to be applied to this speech is the the privately developed terms of service of the platform. Um, So this kind of process really has this blurring of that line between Illegal content or allegedly illegal content Mm -hmm. and content policies determined by the companies. And then the third piece, and and there's a lot more to talk about about each of these. But the third big piece is this potential requirement for content hosts to use proactive measures or upload filtering by another name. Um, Take some kind of step to ensure that content that has been notified to them by these competent authorities doesn't reappear on their platforms pretty much the only way to do that is by some kind of filtering and um you know either scanning all of the material that is uploaded or reviewing it by hand which is you know, frankly impossible um and how giving the kind of the authority to uh these you know uh law enforcement bodies to sort of decide when and how different platforms will need to use some kind of filtering mechanism and potentially even saying, no, you have to use this particular sort of filter or this particular kind of proactive measure.
0: Right. So, I can see huge concerns with each of those three different areas that you described, Um, but uh, Daphne, do you want to discuss what what your sort of biggest concerns overall with with this are? I know that you're concerned. I'm I'm taking it as a given that you're concerned about
1: this. I'm I'm very concerned. Um, So my biggest concerns relate to the the free expression issues that that I think Mm -hmm. you know Emma. Just you teed up like you can you can kind of guess what they are from that description. Um, you know we we traditionally when we think about the line between prohibited speech and permitted speech in any legal system, it doesn't matter if it's the U.S. with the lines that we draw or the Europe with the lines that they draw that might be different. The, the expectation is a court decides or legislatures decide, and a court interprets what the rules are about what speech is prohibited. And this bypasses that in a number of ways. One way is by having these competent authorities who might be local police be the ones to decide what has to come down Um, and the platforms, if they think that it's an illegitimate use of power, that there's a free expression reason not to take it down, they can challenge that, but only later. (laughs) They have to Mm -hmm. take it down first. Um, So it's it's moving from from courts to, to local authorities in that way. And then... The local authorities notify platforms and the platforms become the ones to decide what comes down. And if if what the local authorities do is issue an order, then both the local authorities and the platforms are trying to interpret this new definition of terrorist content that Emma mentioned, which courts haven't interpreted. Nobody really knows what it means, but the the decision about it gets made by the platform. Uh, Or alternately, if the authorities send a referral and they're asking the platform to use their terms of service to take something down, then a legal question never gets asked at all. The the content comes down at government instigation and the user probably doesn't have any way to challenge that um, or any way to, to bring up free expression concerns at all. And then I guess the, the, uh, another way, um, as if we needed more, that this raises free expression issues is, is because of the proactive uh, policing or, or filtering mm-hmm. obligation. I think anybody who's been following the copyright directive is familiar with the, the big problems that we have with filters, either misidentifying material and taking down the wrong thing or identifying it correctly, but missing the new context that makes it lawful. And in the terrorism context in particular, context matters a ton. A video that maybe was used by ISIS for recruitment can appear like a bit-for-bit identical copy being used in counter-radicalization efforts by civil society groups or in news reporting or in education and research. And so the chances of a filter Taking down something that's legitimate and important speech, I think are even higher here than they are in the copyright context,
0: yeah, so with regards to well let me ask a, a couple different questions, but let me start with you know what what is the the reason behind this law like what what are they presenting some evidence that um, there has been some you know massive increase in Terroristic behavior due to content on the internet is—is that—is that the impetus behind the law?
1: So it's—it's it's funny. This sort of long preamble language to the the commission's draft says several times that it is sort of known that terrorist content on the internet uh, contributes to radicalization and and makes people unsafe, and it's understandable why the people who drafted this law are incredibly concerned about that. I mean, they they've experienced terrifying, violent incidents, most recently in Strasbourg, um, in very, very close to home for the drafters. Um, and, and so that, you know, they're, they're very, they, they want to put a stop to it. And it's, it's understandable. I think how people would um, assume that if we can just get this bad content off the internet, then that would, that would make everyone safer. But if you look at the security research by people who are experts in radicalization, that's not really what they're saying. Mm. I mean, you can you can find an expert supporting any perspective, but there was um, a literature review that came out in 2017 that said that more than half of the empirically based publications had concluded that measures like purging content from the internet were sort of useless at best and, and dangerous at worst. So I think there are, there are a lot of, and I can go into why that is, if, if that's useful, but um, the, there, there are a lot of reasons to question whether the very understandable security-based motivations for this law are actually grounded um, in, in research and in, in empirical evidence.
2: One of the other justifications that we hear um, sounds a little bit like the kind of going dark concern that we'll also hear Mm. a lot in U.S. debates about law enforcement not having or security services or intelligence services not having access to the information they need to stop attacks. And partly that comes in on the kind of online content and social media side of things when you see the very large platforms taking substantial increased efforts to remove content, to remove accounts, to kind of use their own version of um, filtering to, to keep material off of their platforms, the, the activity goes to other services. Um, and so one of the big, and it, it's harder to track when it's happening, certainly on private encrypted messaging services, but even just when it's kind of spread out and distributed across lots of little services um, or much smaller services uh, across the web and so one of the explicit arguments that we hear from um, commission staff from members of parliament who are now considering the bill is that they explicitly want this to cover the smallest of the platforms. They want these kinds of orders and referrals and proactive measures to be something that can be ordered to a just paste it or, you know, mm-hmm. another kind of small platform that suddenly becomes an inadvertent, you know, locus of activity for people that security services think are involved in terrorist activity. So that's one of, I think, something that that maybe distinguishes the discussion around the terrorist content regulation from some of the other talks around tech regulation, where it's very much a focus on the biggest of the big platforms and, you know, can we just restrict a, a regulation to Google and Facebook kind of talk? That is really not, that's, that's very much at cross purposes with what I think the commission is trying to accomplish here, which is very much a, a whole of internet or at least whole of content hosting sort of approach.
0: I mean, it's it, it, striking,
1: it's striking how many times the word all appears in the commission's draft. <laughs> we want to reach all the hosts and, and they want to reach jurisdictionally anybody who offers services in the EU, um, you know, which is similar to the, the GDPR's jurisdictional provision. Right. It's, it's very um, definitely intended to reach outside the borders of the EU and to reach very small platforms.
0: I mean, it, it, it's striking to me that the argument that you just presented that they are using for why they're doing this actually seems to be an argument against this whole approach, right? I mean, if the big platforms are taking the content down, and it's just spreading to harder and harder places to find, and that is upsetting law enforcement, why not stop pressuring the companies to take the content down so that law enforcement can watch it on the big platforms, (laughs) you know, where they can actually do something about it and, and make use of the the content is sort of open source intelligence,
1: which is definitely something that some people in law enforcement think is the right approach. I mean, there mm-hmm. um, it's relatively rare that this is out in the public, but you know, every now and then mm-hmm. you'll you'll see conflict between one law enforcement agency saying take this down and another saying, hey, wait a minute, we were trying to monitor these guys, <laughs> don't take it down. Um, and that's you know, that's one of these empirical questions about security and and what approach is going to make everybody safer that nobody's really trying to answer.
2: And that kind of conflict across different law enforcement agencies is extremely salient to thinking about the terrorist content regulation because it it cre- it would create this ability for every member state to designate a different sort of competent authority. So you might have a, a judicial mm-hmm. system or an administrative court in one jurisdiction trying to find like who is the counterpart in the, you know, police force in another member state that they need to kind of coordinate with in order to assure that nobody's investigation is is getting um, interrupted by one state issuing an order um, kind of without the others knowing. I think there's a, a thought that maybe Europol will be able to sort of coordinate the hmm. pan-European approach here, but whether that will actually work out in practice, um, whether they have the kind of ability to handle scale of these types of orders. These are all extremely relevant questions that um, that the commission, the council, the parliament in the EU should all be talking about. Um, But unfortunately, it's been a very rushed process, and they haven't had much discussion about them at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems like a huge concern to me. I mean, it seems like this is the kind of thing that could do, like so many of these regulations do exactly the opposite of what they're intending to do. I mean, if it is you know, interfering with and then, you know, effectively destroying evidence in investigations into, you know, terrorism planning, that that could be really problematic. It's like, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm sort of stunned that they're still moving forward with it, with something like that. Um,
1: I, I think there are a lot of related questions about sort of how, how, people become radicalized to the point of, mm-hmm. of violence and, and how speech works online. You know, these questions you, you alluded to, sort of, do we want to drive people off of major platforms and into small ones where they're hard to find and where they are effectively in echo chambers? Um, or do we want to keep them on major platforms where they're going to encounter people who disagree or maybe, you know, encounter people from... Um, from within sort of their own political spectrum and context, who can be moderating voices. If everybody right. who you know, expresses a flicker of you know, liking ISIS or a flicker of not liking American military intervention in the region, <laughs> or if, if all of those people are at risk of, of being silenced and, and kicked off of platforms, I think we have, we have a real problem with how democratic discourse is, is supposed to go on. And, and we also have a problem, you know, you and I both know how outraged people get when they're silenced or kicked off of platforms over (laughs) something like a copyright violation. Um, but if we have people being silenced and kicked off of platforms unfairly for saying things that were, you know, somehow misinterpreted as being violent extremism, um, those people are going to be extremely frustrated and angry. And the idea that this is a counter radicalization measure that will work (laughs) despite that harm on precisely the people, um, that are, you know, not supposed to be radicalized. Um, it's, it doesn't seem like an idea that comes from people who know much about how online speech and content takedowns play out.
0: Yeah. And and of course there's the broader question of, you know, which I guess you guys have sort of mentioned already is like, you know, what is terrorist content in the first place? And there's always the, you know, one man's terrorist is another freedom fighter or whatever, however you want to put it. Or like you have like the example of like Nelson Mandela being declared a terrorist uh, by the U S government and a few other governments in the past as well. You know, how, how would the world look if such a, a regulation were in place uh, you know, dealing with, with, uh, everything that Nelson Mandela wrote, right? I mean, it's like there's all sorts of things that just make this really, really problematic. Um, so, given that, um, w- 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 what's the state of it? I mean, I know it's it, they've there's, they've been working on it for the last few months, and kind of where where is it, and where is it? Where does it seem to be going at this point?
2: Yeah. So there are. For, you know, for listeners who may not be deeply familiar with uh, how exactly legislating in the EU works, um, there are kind of three different key bodies that are involved in any piece of legislation going forward. So it was the European Commission that kind of proposed the draft language. They have been working on the issue of both terrorist content, but even more broadly, illegal content and intermediary liability questions um, You know, for a number of years. Uh, they had some recommendations out earlier this year that looked at terrorist content, but also things like hate speech um, and illegal defamation, um, and decided to go forward with something that was uh, more narrowly focused just on the issue of terrorist content. Um, the The Council of the EU um, sort of representing all of the different member states um, has put forward kind of their opinion, essentially supporting the Commission's draft with some tweaks around the edges, um, you know, I think a few efforts to somewhat narrow the scope of the the definition of terrorist content. For example, they they introduced some language that actually might require an intent to, I think, to glorify um, terrorist activity as opposed to just happening to have said something that could be interpreted as positive about someone who is associated with a terrorist group. Um, so a little, you know, bringing something like intent to... Mm-hmm inside a terrorist act or, or even to, um, you know, kind of approve of terrorist activity would be an improvement. We would still be left with an extremely broad definition, but it it would be.
0: And like, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but like (laughs) intent, right. I mean, intent is something that you have to establish, right. I mean, it's like you see intent in like, you know, criminal cases and, and, and whatnot. And it involves like, a whole adversarial process to determine whether or not there's intent there. How do you, how do you establish intent if it's just like the police telling Google to shut this guy up without, without even his input?
1: Yeah. How do you figure that out within an hour?
2: If you're a
0: yeah And that. And that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So,
2: so it's a good point that some of the, the council's improvements may just be sort of window dressing <laughs> on a bill that is fundamentally, Compatible with the rule of law, but you know they they thought about it somewhat and made some suggestions. And now it's okay. before the Parliament. So the the European Parliament is um, really the the place to watch for for the next activity on this. Um, I think there are three different committees who are going to be involved in the discussions around it: the um, the civil liberties committee, the culture committee, and the sort of single market committee. Because um, they do recognize mm. that as a question about. Regulating the digital single market and sort of all online content hosting services, um, this will certainly have an economic impact, um, not only on on big and small uh, U.S. companies, but obviously on European content hosts themselves. Um, So the question now is how quickly will Parliament deal with this? And the big sort of looming deadline is the uh, parliamentary elections that are coming up in May of 2019. Um, right. So all of the pressure right now is to move something very quickly because uh, a little bit like we saw with the the dynamics around SESTA-FOSTA in the U.S. this time last year, it is it, voting against a bill that is about combating terrorism, much like combating sex trafficking, is mm-hmm. not something that any legislator is going to want to do. You don't vote against that kind of bill, especially if you're facing election. And right. there's, a, I think, a lot of interest in... Demonstrating to the voters that you know Brussels is really taking this seriously. Representatives in the European Parliament are doing something about terrorism, and so so this bill is really standing in for all of those kinds of questions about you know the relationship between the EU and big U.S. platforms. Um, what is the EU doing in the face of you know terrorist attacks that are are deeply deeply concerning to? Everybody in Europe, of course, um, there's a lot of political weight sitting on this bill um, and and that's really, I think affecting just how much time and attention is being taken in in working out some of these very genuine problems with the language right. and there's this there's
1: kind of an interesting political disconnect where you know if if you are looking uh, to <laughs> to impress your constituents, it's great to be able to say to them. I am fighting terrorism and I am bringing big American tech companies to heal Um, because there is a lot of hostility um, toward big American tech companies. But the disconnect is that if you're talking about YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, uh, they're doing this already. (laughs) This adding the filtering obligation um, doesn't. You know, changes some things about what they do, but, but they are already doing the most basic thing that, that this law um, changes and asks people to do. And what the law really does is extend these obligations to small platforms, including small platforms in Europe who will have an incredibly hard time competing with the big entrenched incumbents if this new set of obligations gets put on them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I am even thinking about this as the operator of a small platform myself. Um, you should. And, 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 mm-hmm. and thinking about like, you know, what does that mean for me, right? I mean, we have comments all the time. And, and some of those comments are, are potentially, you know, distasteful or, or problematic. And I could see that, you know, somebody claiming somehow that some comment that is left on TechDirt is is terrorist related. You know, I don't think it's common. I think probably not be accurate but it's possible um and i mean you know we're we're a pretty small team here <laughs> the idea that we would have to respond to something in an hour uh you know sometimes it takes us a couple of days to even get like you know spam off the site um well, I, there, I there's a solution
1: know. to that in uh, in the draft which is you are required to have a representative on the ground in Europe who is capable of cooperating. In other words, capable of carrying out this one hour takedown and that person um, can him or herself face liability uh, for just as you can under the directive or sorry, under, under the regulation. Um, So, you know, the difficulty of putting a representative on the ground in Europe and getting them in touch with the police (laughs) obviously is already hard if we're talking about small platforms, but then also building a way for them to reach out onto the servers and delete things in the middle of the night here is pretty operationally crazy, I think, for, for a lot of small platforms. And then beyond that, you know, once that happens, if you've received an order, not only are you now in the position of having to build up, you know, filters to, to start doing the proactive measures part of the obligation, but you're also in an ongoing reporting obli- sorry, ongoing reporting relationship oh. with the local authorities. Um, oh, you have to send them a report annually about what your filtering measures are. And if they don't like it, you have to talk to them about it and, you know, work out how you're going to improve it. Uh, you know, you're sort of walking into this new regulatory relationship that sounds kind of like the relationship that regulated industries like, you know, banking or or health right. might have with longstanding regulators. But it's or, you know, many companies now do with data protection authorities. But it's not longstanding regulators. <laughs> it's some. Um, to be determined local authorities who might be law enforcement who have no experience with this. And so no one will know what the rules are or what the expectations are.
0: I, I mean, gosh, I, I mean, you know, I could certainly see like some sort of business springing up of, you know, representatives for smaller platforms. And, and you know, like we've dealt with this with like the GDPR where there's like this mm-hmm. whole crew of people in Europe who are now sort of, you know, help you with your GDPR stuff, and but but you know, it's one thing to have that, and another thing entirely to then give that person access yeah. to access, our servers yeah. to to delete stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, within an hour, and uh, um, like I'm, I'm left <laughs> speechless because that's I mean, it you know, it reaches a point where you, and, and then of course the reporting stuff. Like I mean, it reaches a point where. Like I would seriously consider just blocking Europe. I mean, it's it, it it seems hard to to rationalize why it would still be worth it to have to allow anyone in the EU to to visit the site.
2: And I mean, we're already seeing that sort of response from some sites in response to the GDPR, um, yeah. including a number of different newspaper sites in the U.S. Who, you know, for whatever reason, yep. think that doing the compliance. Potentially required of them by the GDPR is too much to bear is not something that they're they're able to do. And so instead say, you can't read these articles if you're coming from a a European IP address. Um, And that that's we're seeing this kind of this response. Across Europe, um, you know, including in the the NetzDG, the German law that that people might be familiar with, um, that was passed into law last June um, uh-huh. and went into effect at the beginning of of 2018. Um, where one of the big features of of that law in Germany was again the same idea of we want you to have a person here. We want you know, especially that law was really focused on the big social media platforms. Um, we want Facebook, we want YouTube, we want Twitter to have staff in Germany to be more responsive to what the German government wants of them. And, you know, on the one hand, I can understand, especially after talking to a lot of different European policymakers, um, the, the just the sense on that side, on the policymaker side, that there is a contempt for, you know, sovereignty for the rule of law for for reasonable law enforcement requests from upstanding western democracies like there there's a part of the argument that doesn't that probably strikes um pretty true with with a lot of people that really powerful wealthy tech companies have not made themselves available for kind of traditional law enforcement purposes that would do good things for society but it is really hard to separate those arguments from you know, Russia is the Russian legislature is considering a carbon copy of the NetSDG law, um, in including the provision of you must locate staff here. Yep. <laughs> and I heard one Russian defense attorney refer to it as the hostage provision. Right, it's like <laughs> having somebody in country gives yeah. government a really particular way to try to coerce or encourage action out of. A, an internet yep. company. And so some of, some of what we're talking about and all of the, the many different conversations around content moderation and platform responsibility and all that is really grappling with some of the fundamental things that the internet has changed about yeah. the nature of communication and the nature of how national law applies to a global medium. And so it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting to, to realize like, you know, it's 2018, maybe 2019, when <laughs> this uh, goes live and you know, 20, 25, 30 years out from some of the original questions about online jurisdiction, we're still having exactly the same <laughs> fights.
0: Yeah, yeah. There are times when I think we should have called turt like just internet jurisdiction (laughs) because that's like from the very beginning that's that's like the same topic we've been talking about and that's the
2: opposite of clickbait right (laughs) yes well
0: this is uh, welcome to my life (laughs) we've survived this long with the opposite of clickbait um (laughs) um gosh I, you know and it's interesting to me the the whole like the requirement of having somebody on the ground so this is this is a different story in a different context but 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 i think it's interesting because it applies here um where you know there was just this recent situation in australia um where there was this uh, you know criminal lawsuit against uh the guy who's the number 3 in the vatican um for child sexual Uh, abuse. And there's this sort of, I I forget the exact term that they use is what's usually called a uh, super injunction, but it's not quite that in Australia, where they've sort of gagged the press from from talking about it. Um, And, you know, that was during the trial. And then the, the trial concluded and he was convicted on all counts, but the injunction has remained and the gag order has remained so that the Australian press is barred from talking about it. And yet that particular law also has fairly broad reach. So a large number of news organizations have simply refused to report on the fact that the number three guy in the Vatican has been found guilty of sexually molesting children, which seems like a fairly big news story. Um, and there's been this sort of debate over you know, whether or not news publications outside of Australia certainly should cover it. And the Washington Post did write about it. Um, and then the New York Times actually did something Interesting in that they refused to cover it online, but they did write about it in the physical paper. Um, and their argument was that basically their lawyers warned them they have staff on the ground in Australia and they're afraid of what will happen to them if they had published this particular story um, online in, in a way that was reachable in Australia. I think, I think the publication that that did first write about the story was the Daily Beast, and I think they actually tried to geo block it from From Australia, um even though I don't think they have any employees there but there there's this whole question where so now, if you have this other law that is requiring companies to put representatives in certain countries, whether it's Russia or elsewhere, you know then suddenly you also open yourselves up to jurisdictional questions beyond that. It's not just you know in dealing with with one particular thing in Russia, but you get this sort of global impact as we're seeing with this particular story out of Australia um and I can see where. You know, that's a bigger issue than just like, you know, will we do certain things only in this one country or will we block, you know, so even just like blocking the EU from accessing something might not be enough.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Australia in particular has some of the oldest and strongest precedent for extraterritorial jurisdiction You know yeah. in a case against Dow Jones. Uh, right. Saying, you know, we don't care if you're sitting across the ocean with servers across the ocean, it's accessible here and we're ordering you to to stop publishing this. And, you know, people uh, rightly companies rightly worry about jurisdictions where their employees might get arrested, like in yeah. Russia or like in Brazil, which has arrested um, uh, Google executives over right. content removal questions and, and arrested uh, Facebook executives. Um but but really, countries that are unlikely to put your people in jail still have tremendous influence over platforms if they are economically important markets. Yep. I mean, are you really willing sure. to risk having mm-hmm. your ads business in Australia cut off mm-hmm. um, is, <laughs> for, for platforms trying to decide when to comply with one country's laws and even when to go ahead and Enforce that country's laws all over the world. That's that's a very serious consideration. Is the economic clout of of the country?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, you know, again, as I said, like this is like the issue that we probably started covering. You know, it was one of the first articles on TechCrunch was about internet jurisdiction, um and you know, the, the the argument had always been, you know, do you want to allow the sort of least common denominator to rule the rules, you know, to to be able to write the rules for the entire internet. And it feels kind of like that's where we're heading. Um,
2: Well, it's also been this interesting focus that, you know, we've really seen in Europe over the past three or four years on companies terms of service, because if there is one set of standards that applies globally on a particular platform, it's the community guidelines, it's the content policy, um, And that's so it's been interesting deeply concerning, but also intellectually interesting to watch you know <laughs> different law enforcement agencies and europol um come up with these programs where they are explicitly relying on what the content policies are because right. if you know they clued in as many people have that if you can. Get a platform to agree this violates the platform's terms, then you get worldwide takedown. You don't have to have yeah. fights about does the order from this particular court extend outside of those national boundaries. You get your global removal order and the company is the one you know enforcing it on your behalf. So that's the really interesting kind of blurring between government interest in having their laws apply in their country and outside of their country and what companies kind of have the freedom to do to set their own content policies, which is why I think you see um, people like the the UN special rapporteur on free expression, um, David Kay, kind of really calling for companies to think about better yep. conforming their terms of service to human rights standards, because if they're going to stand in the place of being the proxy for law for the world, let's at least... Have them be, you know, more in line with the one sort of global standard around free expression that we have—the, you know, the definitions in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the all of the treaties.
0: Yep. And uh, in case you missed it, and you're listening to this podcast, we had David Kay on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago talking about that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's it is a big deal, and it it sort of stretches. But I I I think that's actually a really important point. I'm glad that you brought it up. I, I was thinking about it when you mentioned it as one of the sort of the three prongs. But the idea that that focusing on the terms of service, um, you know, it's it's another issue that we've talked about, but I don't think gets enough attention. It's just this idea of like, you know, some people refer to it as sort of like private law, right? I mean, it's the law that the platforms themselves make up for what they do. But now you're seeing this sort of two-pronged effort, one of which is, you know, basically instead of using – actual laws to be the enforcing mechanism it's this private law but then at the same time the those companies are getting tremendous pressure to set their terms of service in a certain way um, and so and, and that is all happening obviously entirely undemocratically and with often very little to no transparency um, which raises a whole bunch of other issues about you know whether or not we want you know both private law and private enforcement, globally on these kinds of things. Um, And I think it
2: collapses down one of the real kind of power and, and potential benefits of the internet of having lots of different kinds of environments for communication, right? Like there's such good reasons for different, Websites and forums and and social media services to have very different terms of service. You know, if you want to have a discussion forum about constructive political debate, you're probably going to try to shape that in a really particular way. And it's going to be different from your knitting blog or your fandom space. And those are all legitimate right like it's it's very valid for different groups of people <laughs> yeah. to have different norms and standards that they use to govern themselves and how they talk to each other but if you start taking laws that say you know these are going to apply to every platform from you know the global giants to the tiniest platforms and in all cases law enforcement can ask you to take things down according to your terms of service it really upsets that dynamic and and starts foreclosing the kind of the experimentation and the, you know, platforms that are different for very good reason. Um, and, and kind of, as you were saying, forces people towards kind of one standard, whether that's lowest common denominator, yeah. or, you know, upholding human rights law, it's yeah. still a, a real reduction of the potential diversity of, of places for speech and association that the internet is really all about.
1: The other thing that moving the takedowns into the terms of service realm and away from law does is it short circuits individual Internet users' rights to assert their free expression rights. You know, mm -hmm. if if the situation is the police come and force a platform to take down your speech, then you have a, a right against that under human right instruments or under the First Amendment in the U.S. And you can challenge that state action Um, But if the situation is that a platform voluntarily took something down, then you in most places don't have a right against that and and you don't get to challenge it. And so if if what the platforms are doing is basically accommodating the state by Mm -hmm. amending their terms of service as the regulation requires and then honoring police takedown requests, but enforcing it via their terms of service, you get in a situation where there's no meaningful right to challenge speech suppression that initiated w- from the government in in many different ways. And in both the, the terrorism regulation and the audiovisual media services directive, which is um, in the process of being implemented into national law, there's an idea that uh, people whose speech is taken down on legal grounds will have some kind of right to challenge that. This is much clearer in the AVMSD and much hazier in the terrorism regulation. But even if they have a right to challenge takedowns that are based on enforcement of national law, that won't be useful if the law, meanwhile, gives the platform every reason to say, oh, no, this was because of our terms of service.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a big deal. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> the more <laughs> so I let much. you guys talk, the, the more <laughs> the, the worse this gets. Yeah, and, and like, um, uh, well, I have comments on that, but I'm going to go back to a point that Emma just made. <laughs> and then the the, the, the I, I think it is important. It's one of the things that that you know I know both of you guys have talked about this in the past, and and I've sort of tried to to talk about a lot. It's just like so many of these regulations seem really you know they're you know I, I, they're written even you know even if they're targeting smaller platforms too they're really written with um you know facebook mainly in mind and and maybe youtube or or you know sort of those large platforms and you know it's incredible when you think about the just the the vast variety of other kinds of platforms and you look at like you know the way reddit works or the way, way wikipedia works um, and you begin to think like you know if you try to regulate Reddit or Wikipedia in the same way that you would try and regulate a Facebook, it makes no sense, right? I mean, you (laughs) want that experimentation, that that differentiation. In fact, like, you know, Reddit is is something, you know, I think is really interesting in that, you know, with every subreddit, they have you know, different rules, right? I mean, there's sort of like the overarching platform rules, but then every subreddit has its own moderators and, and their own rules within that, which has created this really interesting ecosystem. You know, it's not always great. Um, you know, you could say it's frequently not great. Um, but it it's you have this, this whole area of, of different examples and different experiments in terms of how do you moderate content. And that's, Actually, really useful, and you begin to get some really innovative ideas. And like one of the the points that that I've raised a whole bunch, and, and I know both of you have talked about the, these things as well. Is like, you know, I think a lot of people approach the idea of of content moderation and content regulation as as a sort of binary option of like keep it up or take it down. And it would be nice if if the world recognized that there's a whole spectrum uh, in between that, um, some of which may be a lot more effective than the, you know, take take this content down and could do a lot more. And the only way we find those out and, and understand what those can do is if we allow experimentation. And all of what you're saying is that we're not really going to get that if if this kind of thing continues to, to happen. Um,
2: yeah, this kind news. of regulation really presumes the sort of top-down, you know, single content policy yeah. across a platform enforced in a centralized way and, you know, may reflect that that's, If you're, if you're a regulator who is mostly familiar with, you know, Facebook and Google services and maybe Twitter, um, that's, that's like the one model of content regulation that you have in mind. And so I think one of the the challenges for, you know, for those of us in the internet free speech community, um, is, is getting that message out about the fact that the internet is so much broader than that. It supports so many different kinds of services and that there's some really good ideas out there and really effective experiments at how to do content moderation. And, you know, they almost never involve top down enforcement because doing that at scale really doesn't work (laughs) particularly well, as we've seen, you know, countless examples of from some of the biggest platforms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh. Yeah, this is. <laughs> I always enjoy talking with both of you, but this this one, this, this is frustrating to me because <laughs> this topic is is really bugs me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like uh, I, I, it 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 obviously has partly left me speechless and but also made me very angry about about the way these things happen and and the fact that like people the regulators always seem to rush into these kinds of. You know, do something um, solutions that don't that that aren't solutions at all and and create all these other problems. So I, I know that you guys have both sort of, you know, you've been working on this issue and you've been talking to people in Europe. I mean, how responsive are they to to these kinds of concerns when you're raising them?
1: Well, on Silence. The, yeah. <laughs> uh, Emma has talked to more more lawmakers than I have, so I, th- I think she, she should speak to that. But on the civil society side, I think everybody's tired, right? Like everybody yeah. just went through a long, bruising fight with the copyright directive or right. still in a long, bruising fight over the copyright directive. And this one just feels like it has so much political momentum and it's so much the same issues and it's so much harder to counter as a messaging matter, because who wants to, um, you know, uh, who wants to defend terrorist content, you know, who wants to be against a law to to make people safe. Um, And and so I think on, on the civil society side, there's, there's a little bit of um, just, just understandable tiredness, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. And I think with a lot of folks on the, the kind of regulator side, I mean, one, I get this feeling that there's just sort of a lot of pent up regulatory interest in the internet, right? It is Mm -hmm. extremely important to every country's, you know, economic and communication systems. Everybody is really focused on what will happen on social media before, you know, my next election. There's, I mean, the level of concern about the, you know, uncontrolled nature of online communications is you know I've never seen it higher um, so I think that in general is is fueling a lot of the scrutiny there's of course the dynamic of Europe and the big uh, content platforms um, from the US that is going to be motivating a lot of this but what I the most effective arguments that that we see um, are when we can really kind of draw out the consequences for different voices that are going to get silenced the fact right. that there's just not a great evidence basis for a lot of these things you know you look at the the regulation the part of the regulation around removal orders that have to be complied with within 1 hour of being notified you know it's it's an arbitrary clock that stops and starts whenever law enforcement happens to see a post and send it you know it's it's not right. a it's not even tied into within an hour of upload which would create a whole other set of problems. You know, that that's a very aggressive <laughs> right. filtering mandate, but at least there's a little bit of a logical argument there of you must, you know, catch it and and nip it in the bud before it ever has a chance to be seen by anybody. And and that's actually an argument we've been hearing a lot of the companies kind of putting out as they're doing more transparency reporting, they really emphasize the number of, L, you know, pieces of content or accounts that they themselves catch with their own automated systems um, because, you know, that at least is, again, if a very problematic set of arguments, it's it's an argument that has some logical consistency to it. If you just talk about like, as soon as somebody decides to flag this post from four years ago that 50 people ever have looked at and send it to a platform, all of a sudden it's an emergency, all of a sudden it has to get taken down immediately. There, There's just no kind of rational link there to even have right. a conversation about thoughtful policy making. So, you know, I think there's, there, there's been more in just like the past few weeks, you know, starting in some of the conversations in December around the council's discussion where we've seen more countries voicing concerns about this regulation than we mm. had before, where it seems like it was just a sure shot. It was going to be kind of unanimously sent along. So we're starting to see some dissension in the ranks, some different members of council members of parliament saying you know we actually have to think about this really carefully this is a pretty big substantial change to how online content hosting would function that we're considering so that's a good sign um i think there is definitely opportunity to try to make the points um to the regulators and you know to coordinate with civil society with academics which are um you know uh, tend to be really a lot more present in some of the, the eu debates um and i think it would be really important for you know people who can really speak from the experience of you know suffering from the the overbroad impacts of this sort of thing um, the way that the potential disparate enforcement of a law that's framed around terrorist content is going to hit certain communities certain groups certain languages a lot harder than others um, you know being able to get the, the voices and the experience of, you know, who is going to fall afoul of this law, the vast majority of people who have content taken down under this law are going to be people who have nothing to do with terrorism whatsoever. Um, and, and trying to elevate those voices um, hopefully will have some sort of impact.
1: One of the most compelling concrete examples to me is um, the, the Syrian archive and other human rights organizations that exist yeah to document human rights abuses. They get people on the ground in Syria who witness horrible things to upload videos and and they gather them for use in eventual prosecutions. And they use them to do do, triangulation to figure out where something happened. It's very sophisticated work. And they've had the Syrian archive alone has had over 100,000 videos taken down from YouTube. Um, right. You know these are people who unambiguously are doing human rights advocacy, and it may be that they're doing it in a way that depends on videos that have a dual purpose that are sometimes used by bad guys, you know, for pro-terrorist agendas. Um, but if if those people can't rely on any hosting platform to be able to do their work, that's extremely troubling. and And it's troubling, you know, going forward with the regulation, that no platform essentially would, would be able to help them. Right. Um, but it, it's troubling already with platforms that are using things like the terrorism hash database, which is a voluntary initiative. And it has over 80,000 images and videos represented in it. And there are at least 12 platforms, probably more by now, um, who are using it to automatically find things, find matches and take them down and hopefully have a human review them. Um, You know, we we just don't know enough about what these existing technologies are doing other than one-off episodes or 100,000-off episodes like like the Syrian Archive. And so the idea that we're going to move forward to mandate the use of a technology when the examples we have already have such conspicuous flaws and are so poorly understood by the public or by lawmakers – um, seems like not a good predicate for making law and public policy, <laughs> to say the least.
0: <laughs> right, and and we should note, of course, that this is this is their approach to to terrorist content. And as you mentioned earlier, they're they're still thinking about all these other kinds of content. They suddenly want to disappear from the internet as well. And if this is the approach they're taking with terrorist content, who knows what they're going to do with everything else that that is bad online, um, which seems to be. The overarching theme in all of this is stop the bad stuff through some sort of uh, waving of a magic wand, um, which usually means telling the companies they have to stop the bad stuff or or face huge fines or criminal penalties. Um, Well... On that cheery (laughs) note, (laughs) um, I I have kept you both longer than I I said I was going to keep you. Uh, This is, as always, a very interesting and educational um, and uh, parenthetically depressing (laughs) uh, conversation, but – I, I appreciate uh, you taking the time and also all the work that, that both of you and your organizations and a bunch of other organizations have have put into um, this and, and other attempts to, to regulate the internet in, in very dangerous and questionable ways, especially as it will impact free speech. Um, Uh, so, so thank you for for coming on the podcast. Um, one of these days I'm going to find a a much happier topic for for all of us to discuss. Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, and it might be a few years before we get there, (laughs) but but, but at some point, at some point we will. Um, I mean,
1: Mike, one, maybe more positive note here is uh, first, thank you for doing this, but also you have listeners who can take action. And part of the reason this this thing has been speeding forward relatively unimpeded for so long is because nobody knows about it and and nobody's paying attention. And so, you know, you, you have listeners who... Do understand the problems that this raises, and many of them are in Europe and are capable of contacting their <laughs> for now are capable of <laughs> contacting their representatives or telling their friends or complaining about it or you know just yeah. anything that brings more attention to it um, is is a step in the right direction
0: Yes, yes, so you heard daphne if if you live in Europe, please speak <laughs> up uh, whether it's it 's contacting the eu Parliament, whoever your representative is or just letting other people know, um, friends or, or peop- other people in the media as well. Cause letters to the if...
2: editor are yep. still an amazing way to get information out and to you know to share perspectives and call people's attention to things.
0: Yep, yep, all of that. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, if, if, if this is as depressing to you as it has <laughs> been to me, uh, uh, try and do something about it because I do think it, that is important. And, and and one thing that I've I've tried to talk about a lot is that, you know, just being cynical about these things and saying, well, it's going to happen is, is not a very useful position to take because while some of these things will inevitably happen, uh, whether you like it or not, plenty of them have been and can be stopped or changed significantly. And that only happens if people really do speak up so um yeah speak up is, is is a good message and and good positive takeaway from, it's a much from more this.
2: optimistic note to end on <laughs> yes
0: yes so thank you thank you for for bringing it around and pulling me back from the ledge a little bit <laughs> um, but but again uh thank both of you for for uh taking the time and 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 talking about this and giving such a thorough and um uh, complete description of of what's going on and um uh, thanks to everyone who's listening and we'll be back next week.